I want to start out by praying, and then we're going to jump right into our teaching this morning. And if you have your Bible, I invite you to open up to the book of Romans. The book of Romans. The book of Romans is the sixth book in the New Testament. So, you know, if you go about two-thirds of your way through your Bible, it's Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, and Romans. We're going to be in the book of Romans this morning. So let's pray together, and then we'll dive right in. Heavenly Father, uh, we come to you now, and we pray as your Scriptures say, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight, his delight is in the law, the teaching of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. God, we pray that that would be true of us now, that we would delight in your law, delight in your scriptures, delight in your teaching, and God, that it would be something that we meditate on, something that we turn over in our mind, something that instructs us, not just now, but in everything that we do. And God, would you use this time now as we hear from the book of Romans, would you use this time now to that end? And we pray this all in Jesus' name, amen. So I'm going to do something you're never supposed to do. Okay, they say in a preaching class, never, ever start out a sermon by reading a poem. And against better judgment, I'm going to do that this morning. Uh, This comes from a man named William Butler Yeats. William Butler Yeats was a poet. He was writing post-World War I Europe, and he was writing right on the brink of the Irish Revolution. This was also taking place in something we're kind of familiar with, in the midst of a worldwide pandemic. It was known as the Spanish flu pandemic. And Yeats was writing because his pregnant wife, after the war in Europe and on the brink of Revolutionary War, his pregnant wife had actually caught the Spanish flu. And so he was fearful not only for her life, but the life of their firstborn child. And here's how the poem begins. Turning and turning in the widening gyre, A gyre is, you know, the whirlpool that goes down in water. So things are descending, things are spinning out of control, turning and turning in the widening gyre. The falcon cannot hear the falconer. Things fall apart. The center cannot hold. Mere anarchy is loosed upon the world. The blood-dimmed tide is loosed, and everywhere the ceremony of innocence is drowned. The best lack all conviction, while the worst are full of passionate intensity. That's the first half of his poem called The Center Cannot Hold. And you see what Yeats is kind of envisioning the world to be like, right? He sees this world as something that's spinning and coming apart. It's spinning out of control with a force so strong that he's saying, hey, the center, the the center of gravity cannot hold. Even that seems like it's going to be ripped apart. And now that picture that Yeats paints of the world pulling apart at the seams is really one of the two major themes of Paul's book of Romans. And we've been studying the book of Romans on and off now for about a year and a half. If you've been with us for that time, you know we've kind of dipped our toe in it here and there over the past year and a half. And that theme of what's wrong with the world, this idea that, hey, the center seems like it's coming apart, that is one of the main themes of the book of Romans. And so today, what I want to do as we jump back into this book, is I want to do something a little bit different. I don't want to jump right back into Romans chapter 12, where we left off. Instead, what I want to do is I want to take a step back. And what I want to do is look back through chapters 1 through 11 
and kind of get a big picture flyover of all these 11 chapters. So if you have never heard a sermon on 11 chapters of the Bible, you are going to do that this morning. And you can call your friends and tell them you're going to be late for lunch too. So as we revisit these 11 chapters, here's what I want to do. I just want to highlight the two main themes. The first theme, which is the bad news. That's what we've been calling it, the bad news that Paul articulates beginning in Romans chapter 1, the bad news that this world is deeply broken and it's fractured because of sin. That's the bad news. It's the first theme of Paul. But then we're going to look briefly as well at the good news that Paul unpacks in this letter as well. The good news that God has healed us and our broken world by sending his own son Jesus to free us from our sin. That's Paul's second theme, the good news. And remember, as we've been studying this book, we've said, we've said that you have to hold these two themes right next to each other. In a lot of ways, they're like contact lenses. We've used that analogy before. That if you have only one functioning contact lens, if you focus only on one of these themes, then the whole entire picture is blurred and distorted. You have to hold the bad news and the good news together. They're complementary to one another. Or you can put it this way. You will never have an appreciation for the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, or an appreciation for Jesus and God himself if you do not also simultaneously hold up the bad news of human sin and our fractured world. The good news and bad news go together. So as we jump in this morning, we're going to start with that first theme, the first theme of Paul, which he says is the bad news. And he starts out the book of Romans right here with the bad news in Romans chapter 1. And Paul unpacks this idea by beginning and saying, hey, the main human problem, the main human problem that every single person struggles with, including every single person in this room, is that we as human beings suppress the truth. We suppress the truth. Namely, we suppress the truth about God. So if you have your Bibles, Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 18, Paul says this. He says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who, by their unrighteousness, suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. Some of you might recognize the name Michael Shermer. Michael Shermer uh, was a a famous author, he still is, he's, he's a professor at Chapman University in Orange, California. He recently, or sorry, he regularly writes for Scientific American, but he's known mostly because he's the editor-in-chief of Skeptic Magazine. And this is a magazine devoted to, quote, debunking pseudoscience, superstition, and irrational beliefs. In other words, it's a magazine devoted to undermining claims about the supernatural God and religion. And most don't know this about Shermer. Shermer was actually a Christian at one point in his life. When he was going through college, he became a follower of Jesus. And for a long period of time, he devoutly followed Jesus and discipleship to him. But he was plagued with these questions, mostly that were brought upon by his longtime girlfriend getting sick and ultimately dying of illness. But he was plagued with these questions that eventually led to him leaving Christianity and religion altogether. 
And so in 2018, Shermer was interviewed, asking him about what it is that he does believe or doesn't believe about God. And he said, quote, I wouldn't consider myself a strong atheist who says, I know there is no God. The weak atheist says, I have no belief in God, and that's how I live my life. I'd say the God question is insoluble. Therefore, I am an agnostic, but prefer the term skeptic. I would be utterly surprised if there was a God. And so the interviewer talking to Shermer actually questioned him further, and he asked, well, what would you say if you died and you came face to face with God? Shermer's response, I would say, God, I I used the brain you gave me. I, I thought this through. I tried this. I tried that. I really believed at a point, and then I didn't. What do you expect? I did the best I could with the tools you granted me, but I have free will after all, and this is what I chose. And now Shermer's not alone in this. In fact, Shermer's uh, uh, probably his most influential uh, thinker that he takes after is a man named Bertrand Russell. And Bertrand Russell wrote a famous book called Why I'm Not a Christian. He said almost verbatim the same words as Shermer. He wrote, quote, if I died and found myself in front of God, I would accuse him of not providing sufficient evidence for his existence. So you can kind of see the parallels here, right? But writing 91 years apart, Shermer and Russell are saying the same thing. They're saying, God, we've studied, we've examined the world, we've examined religion, I've had these experiences, and the conclusion is simple. You don't exist. There's not enough evidence to prove God exists. And it's really interesting, just interesting, by the way, and I'd love to know what you make of this, that Shermer and Russell actually say the exact opposite of what Paul says in Romans chapter 1, those passages that we just read. Look again at verse 19. Paul tells us, he says, for what can be known about God is plain to them. Paul's talking about every human being. He's saying what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. See what Paul is saying, hey, God God hasn't withheld himself. He's not hiding himself. God's disclosed himself. He's shown himself, and it can be plainly seen by all people. Then verse 20, Paul continues. Not only has God plainly shown himself, but he says that God's invisible attributes, verse 20, that is those things that make up God, who he is, God's invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. So what Paul is saying here is, look at creation, the things that have been made. That's the term that Paul used. When you look at creation, then the conclusion is clearly perceived. The conclusion is that there is a divine all-powerful and just God who created and made everything that existed from the heavens to the stars to the mountains to humans to amoebas. All of these things point to the conclusion that God exists. Paul says something completely opposite. And here's what I find remarkable is that we all know this and believe this. In fact, I would say, even to somebody who would, like Shermer and Russell, describe themselves as a skeptic, maybe that's you this morning, I would argue that you actually already believe this and know this intuitively. 
that all things that exist have a cause behind them, especially when it comes to complex things. I want you to think of, think of a 737 commercial jet, okay? It's a very complex piece of machinery, isn't it? And if you work at Lockheed Martin, you know that. Or if you work at Boeing, you know that. Now, is it a very reasonable explanation that that jet just popped into experience, popped into existence? Now take something that's a little bit less complex. Take a wristwatch, for instance. Less complex than a 737. But nonetheless, what would you conclude about a wristwatch? That it was created or that it just popped into existence? Numbers in order and all. Take something even less complex than that. Take a stool or a chair. Whatever we see in the world, we intuitively know, hey, there was a cause before that thing came into existence. There was someone who made these things into existence. Even cats know this, by the way. We used to have cats when we lived in Nashville, and uh, Maggie and Callie, our first cat, Maggie, I used to mess with Maggie quite a bit. What I would do is, you probably have tried this with a cat, if you take a laser pointer and point it on the ground, all of a sudden, if they're just kind of resting on the ground and they see a red laser just come out of nowhere, what do they do? They jump out of their skin, and then they start going and trying to attack and catch the red dot, which is a fool's errand, they never do. But even they know red dots don't just pop into existence. So when one does seem to pop into existence, they jump out of their fur. Now, if a chair popped into existence in front of the cat, they would jump out of their fur even more. Cats know that things don't pop into existence, not to mention chairs or watches and jets. So let me ask you, isn't it remarkable? Isn't it remarkable? That when we consider something as complex and vast as the known universe, the most widely held theory about how the world and the universe came to be is that it just popped into existence out of nothing sometime long, long ago in a galaxy far, far away. <laughs> Even though intuitively we know that doesn't happen. That doesn't happen. Things that exist have a cause. A creation has a creator. And to think that these things just popped into existence by pure chance is really remarkable. So ask yourself this question, second follow-up question to what Paul's saying here, is, okay, if there's plain evidence and God clearly shows that he's the creator, then why does anyone disbelieve? Why does anyone disbelieve that there's a God? Shouldn't everyone believe in God? Well, notice verse 18, Paul says that that actually is precisely the problem. See, even though we know that God exists, even though we know that he created all things, even though we know he is divine and just, nonetheless, verse 18, Paul says, by our unrighteousness, we suppress the truth. We actually actively suppress the truth that God has revealed clearly to all of us. My kids, every night, well, probably two or three nights a week, they always want to wrestle with dad. There's always after dinner, they say they want to wrestle before they go to bed. And I oblige because, you know, they're six, five, and two, and I can still take them. <laughs> and here's what we do. You know, I, I kind of let them win for a little bit. You know, they knock me onto the ground. But ultimately, at the end of the day, and this is usually about 20 minutes in, and I'm tired and I want them to go to bed, I scoop them all up in my hands, and I put them down onto the ground, and I grab a beanbag chair, put it over all of them, and then I lay on my kids. <laughs> 
and I force them to say, say daddy wins. They're like, no, no, never. And I say, say daddy wins. And if they don't do it, I lick them on the face. And then they say, daddy wins. <laughs> that, keep that image in your mind. The reality is that that is exactly what all of us, by nature, do with the truth of God. We actively pin down, hold down, suppress the truth of God. F.F. Bruce, he's an English biblical scholar, he says we all engage in, quote, a deliberate ignorance of the God of the universe. That's what we do. We purposefully, deliberately, intentionally suppress the truth of God that he's revealed about himself. And now notice this, verse 18. Notice the reason that we suppress that truth according to Paul. Paul says that we suppress the truth in unrighteousness. In unrighteousness we suppress the truth. See, don't you see what Paul is saying is, hey, because we know God is righteous, that he's holy, that he's just, and we know that we are unrighteous and unholy, What we do is we willingly and actively take that truth we know about God and we stuff it down because we know that if this God is true, then that says a lot about us, doesn't it? It says a lot about us. It says that this God who is righteous and just can and will hold us accountable and judge our unrighteousness. Therefore, we try and shelve that truth. We stuff it down as far as we possibly can. I love what Fedor Dostoevsky says. Fedor Dostoevsky was a a 19th century author. He said, quote, if a man is confronted with a miracle or God himself as an irrefutable fact, he would rather disbelieve his own senses than admit the fact. Isn't that true? Confronted with God, we would rather disbelieve that what we're seeing is a reality rather than admit the fact this God exists. Now, I want to propose to you, if you're skeptical about Jesus, maybe that's you this morning, if you're skeptical about the Bible or church or Christianity, maybe you have intellectual misgivings about Christianity, I just want to ask you, is it possible, just possible, that maybe in your heart of hearts the problem that you have with Christianity is not a merely intellectual problem, but that it's actually a moral problem, meaning that you actually know God to be true And you know that that means he's going to hold you accountable and that he might stand in judgment over you for how you're living your life. And therefore, what you do is you throw up intellectual arguments in order to avoid that reality. I know a good friend of mine. He's actually a police officer in Denver Police Department. He uh, used to work in a cubicle. And adjacent to him in a cubicle was a woman that he worked with. And this friend of mine, he would turn on the radio to a Christian radio station every single day. And it wouldn't be loud or obnoxious like he was trying to tell his entire office that God exists or anything like that. But he would just have it on and he'd listen to it as he was doing his paperwork during the day. Well, the lady who worked adjacent to him started kind of asking questions about Christianity. And it was really touch and go for a little while. But then after about two or three years, my friend actually asked the person next to the cubicle, hey, you know, you've been listening to this stuff on and off for the better part of three years. What do, you, what do you think about it all? Do, do you believe that that's true? And she said, well, you know, kind of. It seems like most of the stuff that I hear is true. And he said, well, then what's holding you back? Why wouldn't, why wouldn't you believe it? Why don't you embrace it? And she says, because then I know I'd have to change. 
See, she knew. She knew it to be true, but that wasn't the issue. Intellectually, she was convinced, but she knew that if she admitted it, she knew that that would say a lot about her and what God would say about how she was living. In other words, she might have to change. So again, I would just propose to you, maybe our problem is not that there's not enough intellectual evidence for the existence of God. Could it be that your problem with Christianity is actually a moral problem? So what's next? Well, we suppress the truth about God, and Paul says that after we've done that, there's this vacuum that's created, right? There's this vacuum that's created because we suppress the truth about God and unrighteousness. And as bad as that is, Paul says it leads to something worse. Paul says once we suppress this truth about God, what we by default do is we begin to replace God with what the Bible calls images or idols, what's known as false gods. Paul says as much in verse 21. He says, for although they knew God... They did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So you can see the progression that Paul set up here, right? Because we are unrighteous in our life, we suppress the truth about God in our mind and ultimately we exchange God in our hearts. We exchange God the God who made us in his image for a God that starts to look a lot more like our image. In other words, a God that's a little less just, a God that's a little less powerful, a God that's a little bit more tolerant of my selfishness, my pride, my greed, my envy, my resentment. In other words, a God that looks a lot less like God and a lot more like me. Now, I used to do this, by the way, still do this all the time, a thinking that you know, God isn't quite that way, or God can never be that way. But when I was first becoming a Christian, and I thank God every day that this person came into my life, but I had a guy who came into my life and actually called me on this, is I would be reading the Bible and I'd say, God would never do that. God would never allow that. God couldn't do that. God would never say that. God couldn't think that. And then finally, one day, this really good friend of mine, very grateful for him, he asked me this question. He said, Daniel, where do you end And where does God begin? And I didn't exactly know what he was saying, but he put it this way. He said, hey, in every relationship with another person or another being, even if it's somebody you're extremely close with, like your wife or your spouse or a good friend or a family member, in every relationship, even somebody that you're closest with, they don't always believe the same things that you believe. They don't always think the same things that you think, and they don't always act the way that you think they should act. So where do you end and where does God begin? Because everything that you're telling me indicates that God thinks exactly like you. God wants you to act exactly like you think you should act. So where do you end and where does God begin? It sounds like you are God. And it's strange when it comes to God, we often do that. We create an image of God, of what we think he's like, but that God never disagrees with us, does he? And, you know, we think of images or idols, we think of wood and stone, but the best idols that we make are out of our minds and out of our hearts. And, you know, I didn't have the vocabulary for it at the time when my friend was telling me this, but that's exactly what I was doing. Subtly, unintentionally sometimes, what I was doing is I was exchanging 
the God who made me, for a God who looked exactly like I wanted him to look like. A God who would never judge me, a God who would never call me to change. And Paul says the outcome of all this, the result of all this, is not just that we put God on the shelf, but it actually defiles and pollutes our world in almost unrelenting ways. Verse 28, Paul says, after all this, he says, since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. By the way, you know, I was reading through this, and by the way, God's just an equal opportunity offender, isn't he? Um, I was reading through this, and I was thinking about my wife was listening to a podcast this week of six things in disciplining your kid that you should never do. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. I'm working on like our washer and dryer as she's telling me these things. And she's like, yeah, first thing, never make threats that you're not going to follow up with. And I'm like, did that two hours ago. And then there's other ones like, hey, don't bribe your kids. Like, whoa, yeah, do that all the time. And as she's going through these six, I'm just thinking, yep, wrong, awful parent. I'm terrible. My kids are going to be screwed up for the rest of their life. They're going to need counseling. And that's exactly what we see here, right? When we're faced with these things, all of us stand condemned under this list, this litany of things Paul uh, rolls out here. But then verse 32, he says, hey, and here's the worst thing. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. We take the things that we know are worthy of God's judgment, worthy of punishment, worthy of death, and we begin to celebrate and give uncritical approval to those who do them. We begin to take what God calls evil and we begin to call it good, healthy, heroic. And to be sure, almost nobody does that outright. Nobody really does that outright. Nobody says, hey, covetousness, envy, greed, do it. But what we usually say is, no, 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 that that person is just creating greater, greater economic opportunities. Nobody would say, hey, we want more ruthless people. But when someone across the political aisle says something damning or when skeletons are discovered in their closet, we have no problem, no problem whatsoever celebrating their downfall and showing absolutely no mercy to that person. Or... We do this with a handful of other things. Murder is called a constitutional right, a choice, health care. Disobedience to parents is called thinking for yourself, living your truth. Or heartlessness is called common sense policy. Or we think of things like strife and gossip. Those things are called cable news and talk radio. (laughs) And now, equal opportunity offender, okay? Now I think of my daughter Jane. You know, just the other day, we're about to have spaghetti and meatballs, and she says, meatballs, no, I don't want those. And then she gets up onto a chair, and then she sees the meatballs, and she says, oh, I want those, hot johnnies. You know, meatballs, no, hot johnnies, yes. And that's what we do with this list of things. We say, nobody wants a ruthless person, but hey, if we can couch it in the right term, sure, we'll be okay with that. 
So while we might not approve of these things outright, we realize that all we are doing is giving approval to them by calling them by another name. Like Paul says in verse 32, though we know God's righteous decree that those who do them deserve to die, they not only do them but give approval to those who practice them. So go back to Yeats. Remember Yeats, the poet that we started the sermon with? We can see, right, (laughs) he wasn't very far off, was he? He wasn't very far off. His vision of the world is one spiraling out of control where the center is being pulled apart, where the center cannot hold. That dovetails pretty well with Paul's description of the world in general, doesn't it? As a world spinning out of control. And it jives with us, too. That we are completely being pulled apart because of sin within us. And that's the bad news. And it's really bad news, but what makes it even worse news is retrace your steps. Go back to verse 18. Notice there Paul says that because of these things, because of sin, he says, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. That's the bad news. Not only that we've made a mess of our world and a mess of ourselves, but because of our unrighteousness, we are under the wrath of God, both in this life and the life to come. And this isn't a passing reference either. You don't have to read the Bible very far to see that the wrath of God is a very common theme throughout the Bible. In fact, the Bible has over 20 words used to refer to God's wrath, over 200 important passages on the subject. Actually, I read my notes wrong there. 600. Sorry about that. Somebody's fact-checking me here. There are passages like this, passages from the prophet Nahum. Nahum writes, The Lord is jealous and an avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in whirlwind and storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. The mountains quake before him, the hills melt, the earth heaves before him, the world and all who dwell in him. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him, but in an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of his adversaries and will pursue his enemies into darkness. Or we think of passages like this. This is about Jesus himself. Jesus, we're told that he, the Lord Jesus, will one day come again. And we're, set, we're told on that day, the Lord Jesus is, will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. That's the bad news. That all humanity, including us, stands under God's wrath for our rebellion and sin against him. And you have to remember, we have to keep this in focus. This idea of the bad news. Because without it, you will never see your cure, your need for Jesus. After all, if you go to the doctor's office, 
and the doctor, it's, it's just a routine checkup, right? It's your 12-month checkup. And your doctor comes in and he says, great news, we found a cure for Parkinson's. You would think to yourself, well, that's great, doctor, but I don't suffer from Parkinson's. The good news without the bad news is hollow, and the remedy is no good if you don't know the disease. And that's how we often perceive ourselves. I'm okay. I'm okay. I'm healthy. I don't need a remedy because there's nothing wrong. I love this quote. It comes from a man named Philip Reef. He was talking about how people in the church used to think about going to church. And he said, today people go to church to be made happy. But in the past, they went to have their misery explained to them. And now all that to say, unless you know you are sick, you will never seek nor appreciate a cure. And unless you have your misery explained, you will never know where to look for a solution. And until you hear the bad news, you will never appreciate the good news. And so God's wrath is bad news, and the bad news gets badder. So cheer up. Smile. It's good. Paul actually continues on this. And Paul says, hey, it's, it's bad not even just for the bad people. And here's what I mean. See, during Paul's time, the Jewish people of that time would have thought, well, we're good people. Yeah, God's wrath is totally warranted on people who don't believe in God, on Gentiles, on people who don't follow God's law, but we're the Jewish people. We're God's covenant special relationship people. God's given us his Ten Commandments, and we know how to live. Therefore, we're going to be okay. And they thought that that made them somehow superior to people around them. By the way, just as an aside, this is how much of the world perceives Christianity and Christians specifically. I looked up these statistics. This comes from the Barna Research Group. They said that the perceptions of Christians in the United States of America from people who are ages 16 to 29, the most common perceptions that that age group holds of Christians, 87% say that Christians are judgmental. That Christians consciously or not, are quick to judge others for their failings and their beliefs. And then 85% said that they viewed Christians as hypocritical, meaning they perceive Christians to have a polished image that's not entirely accurate. And now Paul says, yeah, that polished image that Jewish people carried around then and that sometimes we are apt to carry around now because we think we're good and religious, Paul's saying, hey, that image is false. Even good religious spiritual people are sinful, and even they are under the wrath of God. Paul says, moving on into chapter 3, he says, what then? Are Jews any better off? Are religious people any better off? Paul says, no, not at all. For as we've already charged, all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin, as it is written. And then Paul goes on here to mention about a hundred scripture verses to make this point. Uh, stick. He says, Psalm 14, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. Psalm 53, all have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Psalm 5, their throat is an open grave, they use their tongues to deceive. Psalm 140, their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Psalm 10, their feet are swift to shed blood. Psalm 59, or sorry, Isaiah 59, in their path are ruin and misery, and in the way of peace they have not known. Then Psalm 36, there is no fear of God before their eyes. Jew, Gentile, religious, irreligious, Paul says, hey, it doesn't matter. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. 
And then Paul concludes. He says, hey, listen, you think the law is going to make you okay. You think doing good things. You think being a good person. You think trying your best is going to make you okay before God because you have his law and you think you know the right way to go. Paul says, no, you have to hear this. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in God's sight. Since through the law comes knowledge of sin. See, some people think if I do the right things, if I'm obedient enough to God, I'm going to be okay before God. Paul says, it's not how it works. The law is not a, here's what you can do. No, the law instead gives us knowledge of sin. The law is like an x-ray machine. An x-ray machine, right, even though things appear good on the outside, an x-ray machine shows what's going on on the inside. And what the law shows us is that on the inside, no one does good, not even one the law exposes how sinful we are. So how are you guys feeling? <laughs> All right, I'm just warming up. All right, that's the first theme, the first lens that we have to keep in focus, the bad news, that we are under the wrath of God and we cannot save or justify ourselves. And now Paul is saying, even though that's the case, there is tremendous good news. There is unbelievable good news. Even though we have this diagnosis, there is a beautiful cure. And Paul says it immediately following those verses that we just read. Paul says, but now, now given the arrival of Jesus, he says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, it's the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. For there's no distinction, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, who God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. So you see what Paul is saying there. He's saying, even though we are unrighteous, a righteousness has been shown from God. And now... I love this movie, Searching for Bobby Fischer. I actually watched it recently with our church plant resident, uh, J.P. Watson. It was really bad because that movie makes me tear up and uh, I started crying in front of him. But if you know the story of Searching for Bobby Fischer, it's a movie about chess. And it's the main character, his name is Josh Whiteskin. He's this seven-year-old prodigy who absolutely destroys other people in chess. And his father recognizes his son's brilliance, and what he does is he hires this very strict and demanding world-renowned chess master. His name is Bruce Bandolfini, and he hires him to train his son. And as the movie progresses, you see that more than anything, more than any championship, more than any accolade, more than anything in the world, all that Josh wants is this tiny certificate, a Xerox certificate that says, Master Chess Player and signed by Bruce himself, his instructor himself. That's all he wants. He doesn't want to win any championship. He doesn't want to be a world-renowned chess player. All he wants is a certificate from his instructor that says, I approve of you. That's it. That's all he wants, a simple certificate. And in the last match that Josh is about to play against, you know, his main rival, after he thinks his relationship with Bruce has been completely severed because they have this quarrel and they go their separate way, Bruce shows up right before the last match and he gives him this present and 
I love this part. Josh opens the present and he pulls out this frame, this beautiful framed picture that doesn't say master chess player. Instead, it says grandmaster chess player, the highest honor that anybody in chess could ever receive, that any board can possibly give out or that any instructor can grant. He knew at that moment that he had the approval and love of his instructor, the only thing that he wanted. I think of myself. I used to play baseball, and I played baseball in college, and it was my senior year. My dad had never seen me play baseball in college. And it's because, you know, I, I played really far away. I played like eight hours away, and we'd often be traveling, so they could rarely ever make it out to see a game. But then one day I showed up to the field, and without any Without any prior notice, my mom and my dad are sitting there on the bleachers, and I had no idea they were coming, but there's my dad coming to watch me play baseball. And that's all I wanted. That's all I wanted is for my dad to see me play baseball and just, you know, cool addition to the story. My very first at bat, I hit a line drive, hardest line drive I've ever hit. Hit the pitcher right in the ankle. The ball went over off onto the side of the field. There's this unwritten rule in baseball when that happens and the other person's hurt. You just stay on first base. But I'm like, my dad's here. I'm going to second, you know? And that's all I wanted. I knew in that moment, hey, here's my dad. He loves me. He approves of me. And the good news Paul lays out here is that very thing. In place of our failure, our disappointment, even though we deserve God's wrath and judgment, Paul says, God approves of us. He loves us. That, in fact, there's nobody on earth that could love us more than Jesus Christ, our Savior. Paul says as much. That's what the word justified means in verse 24. Maybe the most important word in all the Bible. We are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. That is the most important word in the Bible. You probably remembered it growing up. Growing up, a lot of us were taught in children's ministry. What does justified mean? It means it's just as if I'd never sinned. That God looks at us and we are spotless and perfect in his eyes. And that's helpful. That's helpful because that's how the Bible describes sin. It is a debt that we cannot pay, but Jesus himself has paid the debt in his death on the cross. A great transfer has happened. Jesus on the cross took our sin, the wrath that we deserve, upon himself on the cross. In verse 25... We're told Jesus is the one God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. See, on the cross, the wrath that we deserved was placed on Jesus. The punishment that we deserve for our sins was poured out on Jesus on the cross in his blood spilt. And Paul even takes this one step further. He says, hey, not only... Is it just as if you never sin and your wrath is punished, but the perfect life of Jesus is also transferred to you? God approves of you. He loves you. No one on earth loves you more as Jesus Christ, your Savior. And your only response is faith. You can't do it. That's the bad news. But if you receive this gift by faith, you will be saved. I'll close with this. There was a guy I knew. His name was uh, Danny. Uh, no relation to me. Danny went to Vanderbilt University, whereas uh, I, I did grad school at Vanderbilt. And Danny was a part of this campus ministry. And Danny was the guy who did everything right. He led music for this campus ministry. He led Bible studies. He always was the first volunteer. Well, 
he found out that he had leukemia during his senior year of college at Vanderbilt. And he was uh, undergoing some stem cell treatment and some chemo, I believe. Uh, And he was in his hospital room when he was uh, in his second semester during his senior year in college. And he had to go to the bathroom, but he was too ashamed to ask for the nurse to come in and help him go to the bathroom. So he tried to do it himself. He got out of the bed and feeling lightheaded because of all the treatment that he had been been receiving, he fell down onto the ground and hit his head on the ground, completely passed out. And when he woke up, he woke up essentially into a pool of everything that he had gone to the bathroom to relieve himself with. And he said, it was in that moment that he realized, this is where God wants me. I've been striving my whole life to do things for God. But now I realize God has done something for me that I can't do for myself. I can't even go to the bathroom, let alone be righteous before God or take away my sin. That's the beauty of the good news, that the God who demands righteousness is also the God who provides righteousness. And the God who could justly pour out his wrath and justice, poured it on himself, poured it on his own son. It's the God we serve. It's the good news. Let's pray. Lord God, you are so good to us. God, we do not deserve anything that you give us. And God, you have given us your most precious gift, your own son, to be beaten, to be crushed, and to receive the wrath that we justly deserve for our sins. And you have given all of his righteousness, his perfection to us, and we are clothed in beauty in your sight because of his perfect sacrifice in life. God, that's where you want us. And we thank you and we rejoice in this good news, knowing that you have finished the work we could never complete, what we could never do. And God, you have made us righteous and beautiful in your sight, not because we are beautiful and righteous, but because Jesus is beautiful and righteous. God, would this be on our hearts and be on our lips, be on our minds as we sing out your praises now. And we ask this all in the name of Jesus, your son. Amen.